Do you mind if I smoke? It won't affect the test. All right, I'm going to ask you a series of questions. Just relax and answer them as simply as you can. You've got a little boy. He shows you his butterfly collection, including the killing jar. I'd take him to the doctor. You're listening to a podcast. Suddenly, you realize there's a wasp crawling on your arm. Which podcast? It doesn't matter. Just answer the questions, please. Which podcast? Um, now playing the movie review podcast hosted by Stuart, Jacob, and Brock. The movie series being reviewed is the Philip K. Dick series with such classic films as Blade Runner, Total Recall, and Minority Report. I go to nowplayingpodcast.com every Friday to download a new episode of the series. You hear a warning that these podcasts will be full of spoilers. I hit pause, watch the movie, and then listen to the podcast. You're reading a magazine. You come across a full-page photo of a naked woman. Shh, with the questions. The podcast is starting. Today we're talking about Total Recall, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, Rachel Tocton, Sharon Stone, Michael Ironside, the great Ronnie Cox, and directed by Paul Verhoeven. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart, I'm in L.A. And this is Jacob, and I got to get my ass to Mars. <laughs> get your ass to Mars. <laughs> yes, William Hurt, who was uh, considered for this role, would not have been able to deliver that line the same way that Arnold does. <laughs> William Hurt was considered for this role. Okay, Patrick let's Swayze. just... There, there's a whole bunch of people. Yeah, let's let's start right at the entry point, because obviously people associate this as an Arnold movie, but this is not an Arnold story. I mean, it's got to be said, this is a short story, like all the movies we're going to be reviewing in this podcast series, uh, written by Philip K. Dick, optioned in the mid-70s, and languished in Hollywood for well over a decade, with a lot of different people attached to it. And the character was not a muscle-bound construction worker. It was a pencil pushing uh, dweeb and they had everyone from Richard Dreyfus, Matthew Broderick, you name it. It was supposed to be a very non-heroic anti-Arnold part but as fortunes would have it when it eventually fell out of play with David Cronenberg and Dino De Laurentiis, Arnold who had been cast in RoboCop but the suit didn't fit or something, some weird story about that Thank anyway. God. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, he still wanted to work with Vorhoven, and they said, this is our project, and snatched it up with Carol Cole's big money help. Well, yeah, Total Recall is one of these movies that you can't picture as anything else but a Schwarzenegger movie. One of the most famous ones, of course, is Beverly Hills Cop was not written for Eddie Murphy. I think it was Stallone originally, right? Yep. That's and correct. Obviously, folks, the movie was rewritten a little bit or changed here and there to fit more Arnold. Beverly Hills Cop was not as written as you all know it as Eddie Murphy in the role. So you can't really say in my mind, oh, is it, can you imagine him in that role? Well, it's a whole different movie then. You know what I mean? So William Hurt in this role, sure, would have been a <laughs> – I would have enjoyed that a lot. But it, it would certainly not be, I don't think, could it possibly have been this kick-ass movie? I don't think so. Well, yeah, it wouldn't have been an action movie. I think it would have been much more of a Blade Runner style movie. I mean, we're going to get into it. The distinct approaches to this movie and the last movie we discussed are extreme, to say the least. I was going to say, this is the anti-Blade Runner. I mean, with Blade Runner, you took the big action star, Harrison Ford, Han Solo, Indiana Jones, and gave him this very toned-down role. This movie, they, they take this mundane clerk as a character, and they give it to Arnold. It's the total anti-Blade Runner right here. 
Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So we should probably start with a plot summary. In the distant future, but not like Star Trek distant future, but like sometime in the 21st century, Douglas Quaid is a regular construction worker who dreams of this dark-haired woman who, as he wanders Mars, and he's married to this beautiful blonde woman who... He has a boring construction job and he has dreams, dreams of going on vacation to Mars. And he finally decides that he's a commercial for this place called Recall, which implants memories into your head, implants vacation memories that seem better than the real thing. And so he goes to these people and he decides not only to get an implant for a vacation to Mars, but a vacation from himself and a secret agent profile is added to this. So when he's in the chair to get this Recall memory, he has a schizoid embolism and he starts freaking out because apparently they somehow there's already an implant in there that's running his life. Make a long story short, Douglas Quaid isn't really Douglas Quaid. Apparently, he is this secret agent guy who is trying to find the resistance on Mars. Apparently, his body once belonged to this other man named Hauser, Hauser who is best friends with Cohagen, who runs Mars like a slave colony because there's no jurisdiction up there clearly is trying to find the head of the resistance, the resistance on Mars who were trying to get freedom from this tyrannical oppressor who controls the airflow that they get and controls all sorts of business up there. Apparently, Hauser is his right-hand man who is trying to ferret out their leader, Quato, and that is the main plot. But the problem is also, what is real? Is Quaid real? Is Hauser real? It's all a big mystery that we find as the plot unfolds. The big secret of Mars that Cohagen is hiding is that the Martians have created a mechanism that will melt the ice glaciers at the core of Mars that will provide Mars with an atmosphere and become habitable. So at the end of the movie, Douglas Quaid doesn't want to be Hauser. He fights this tyrannical guy. He turns the machine on. Mars gets an atmosphere. And that's basically what's going on. There's a lot of twists, no doubt about it. Yeah, and that's the best thing about this movie is the twists, in my mind. Yes, the action's great, special effects were good in their time. But one of the things that's a lot of fun about watching this movie now is there are a lot of twists. And of course, I've, I don't know about you guys, but I didn't see this movie when it came out. I saw it on video, and I watched it on video I don't know how many times. This movie was so much fun to watch and rewatch and rewatch again that the plot twists, I remembered every single one of them, but it's still so much fun to watch it unfold. The movie still plays very, very well. I actually haven't seen this since it actually came out in the theater. I think I was like 14 when it came out, and I was spending the night at a friend's house. I wasn't allowed to go see R-rated movies unless I had my parents' permission, and I was at a friend's house, and he's like, hey, let's go see this. I'm like, okay, and you know, of course, the whole time I'm freaking out as my... You know, my dad going to end up being in the same theater as me. Uh, but I love the film. I mean, I was 14. If you're a 14-year-old boy, you know, we talked about Blade Runner. If you're 10 years old, not the film for you. <laughs> this is the perfect 14-year-old boy movie. Mm. But I probably watched bits and pieces when it was on TV uh, since then. But this is my first time sitting down and, and watching it as a sophisticated adult. I kind of agree with you. I don't know if I saw, I'm sure I saw it again on television, but I did see it opening weekend when it originally came out. And that's the only time I can recall seeing it start to finish. I have to say this got me over the hump. I think it got a a lot of people over the hump with Arnold Schwarzenegger is that he really up until this point wasn't associated with great movies, but he was building up his rep with the sci-fi movies. I mean, most of his bread and butter were things like Commando, uh, Red Heat, uh, Red Sonia. Conan the Barbarian, of course, but you know, his biggest hit up to this point 
was probably Twins, even more than the Terminator was more of a cult hit at this time before Terminator 2 came out. But Twins was a pretty big hit. I think it was his biggest grossing in the theater movie. But yes, there were right. it was the two sci-fi ones that were developing a cult on cable and on video were Terminator and Predator. And those were the movies that convinced me that this wasn't going to be a stupid Arnold movie, that there was hope for it being a really cool, uh, smart science fiction movie. And so I plunked down money to go see it in the theater against my better judgment and was so pleasantly surprised. I really did think at the time it was brilliant and mind-blowing and had great special effects. Uh, Those impressions have faded over time. I was very excited to see how much of it would hold up as an adult, but I certainly have not watched it. Since teenage years, I know I haven't seen a frame of footage of it until this podcast. Let me ask you a question then, guys. Let's open the floor up to this now. We were talking about how many other people were considered for this role in the many different incarnations before this movie came out as the movie we know today. Would another actor have worked better than Arnold? With this script, it needs to be Arnold. It needs to, or or some other big action superstar at the time. This script was made for that kind of role. I mean, you try to throw in a more low-key character actor uh, to play Quaid as he's actually written in the short story. It's not going to work for this film. This film was meant to be an action blockbuster, and you need that kind of star power for the script that they were working from. I'm not sure. It would be a very different experience than what we're given. Uh, One thing that became rushing back to me uh, as soon as I started watching this movie from the very first scene, there's a, uh, you know, a scene where it opens in a dream and he's walking along and he slips and breaks his glass and does this kind of death scene and then wakes up and has this sex romp with Sharon Stone in his bed. And it comes rushing back to me how terrible of an actor Arnold Schwarzenegger is. I mean, he's really bad and, and really only good. I feel like James Cameron, say what you will about the man's work, always got the best work out of him the second terminator and true lies particularly were films where he really got arnold at his best and found the humor and pushed him uh, to be the icon that he is but without james cameron most of those movies most of his films he's terrible in it so he's kind of a blank slate here oh wait i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna stop you just for a second though he played robots in the first two james cameron movies he did that plays up to his strengths the less this guy (laughs) talks the better <laughs> yeah yeah no 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 all right the first one he played uh, a one-note character but in the terminator 2 he was learning to be human so there was a wisecracking uh human uh, emotional component to that role and it it did play you're right it plays to his strengths because the guy is a physical presence not so much an emotional actor and these first couple scenes him trying to die and then him trying to have sex with Sharon Stone were god they were they were just awful weren't they i mean they were terrible scenes i just well any man who can't fake having sex with Sharon Stone <laughs> especially Sharon Stone in 1990 but was that sex? I, that was some, I thought he was going to punch her. It was like the most aggressive, bizarre, choreographed. Uh, it's just, I don't know. I really felt like, wow, here's somebody that is not very natural playing uh, down to earth. And so had they cast somebody else, had they cast an everyman in the role, certainly if they got in a different director, I think we could have a, a really compelling, smarter film. But that's not what they were making here. That's not what they were doing. Case in point, just to prove my point, Keanu Reeves, also not a great actor, but they did a, a similar job with him and Matrix. And I feel like Matrix actually borrowed a lot. 
from this movie, the setup of it, the whole idea of a pencil pusher who finds out he has extraordinary ties to another world, if you will. I, I feel like there's a lot of, of total recall in Matrix. And I feel like, yes, you can do this with different types of actors. No one would confuse Keanu Reeves with Arnold Schwarzenegger. You still could have had an action movie with a different actor. But it was the end of the 80s. It, he was the biggest action star of the time, certainly bigger than Seagal or Stallone or, or, or Van Damme or any of those that were coming up at that time. It works. Uh, it works. I have the perfect person, though. I have the perfect person for everything you're just saying. My mind, to give the movie a little more strength and uh, a little more character would have been Bruce Willis because he has that everyman kind of thing from Die Hard going, right? Die Hard had already come out. This same summer, Die Hard 2 had come out. So in my mind, what really interests me about this movie, about Arnold Schwarzenegger being cast, is this man is gigantic here. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, he may not be as big as he used to be, but he's still pretty big. Those biceps are gigantic, right? And so he's hit, sitting there doing the construction work, and that's supposed to be the reason he's all jacked up when right. the guy next to him is this <laughs> schlub. And he's who's also in Die Hard oh. 2, by the way. But anyway, the, the point is that if you had Bruce Willis in this role, it would have been a little more realistic to me that this guy was not. Good call. Whatever. Good call. I like your casting. I think you're right. He definitely is a more he, – he's believable as a construction worker. Arnold is only believable as a, uh, a comic book character. And so it's not really a surprise when we find out he has this other identity because look at the guy. I mean, of course, he, of course he's exactly. not an everyman, everyman Joe construction worker. And it certainly makes it less surprising that he can take down Danny DeVito – looking people that are trying to, uh, to mug him. I'm like, well, this is, you know, ridiculous. Didn't he just do a comedy where Danny DeVito was his exact opposite? And now they're making him his foe in a fist fight. I mean, come on. This is silliness. I, I think, you know what, though, with any Arnold movie, you're, you're going to have to, the suspension of disbelief has to be turned on why he's in any role, unless it's like Conan or Terminator. I mean, yeah. same year was Kindergarten Cop that came out. Yep. There's no way this guy was actually a cop and was going to go undercover as a, you know, that, that's the whole joke is that he's so unfit for that role. So anytime I see this guy in a movie where he has to play anything but a robot or a barbarian, I'm just going to give it a buy. It, it's just <laughs> in my mind, there's no good reason he should be doing anything but that. And let's just move past that and get on with the story. I'm with you there, man. I'm with you there. I'm just saying that it would have given the story, the movie would have a little bit more strong. Instead, it kind of falls in a little more than I remember it into a little more B-movie territory because of this. And while I had still a lot of fun, I didn't take it as seriously this time because of all these elements we're talking about. A different actor in the lead might have given it a little more gravitas because the story is just so interesting. With a different actor in the lead role, I think it could have, even though it's a good movie, it could have catapulted it to a different level. Well, just think about all that this character has to face. I mean, at first we're introduced to this character, and he's Douglas Quaid, a man dreaming of Mars who's earthbound and, and bored with his life. And then he finds out that he might actually be a spy who was part of a resistance move. And then he gets to play a spy and take on a secret identity and run around. And then we find out he's actually in cahoots with the bad guy and that we don't even want to like the person that he really was at his core. And can he be different now with that knowledge? That is feats of acting. So, I mean, if you had had a great actor in that role, I think you would have had one movie having a totally stone-faced 
uh, blank slate, it, it works in its own way. And I think it definitely helps that Vorhoven brings in a lot of raunch and comedy. I think that's the way to make this seem less absurd. Well, Stuart, here, here's the thing. This story definitely has all those elements you're talking about. But this movie, it's an action movie, and it never really explores any of those concepts too deeply. I, there was times where I wanted them to go deeper, but they just never do. And was that because they wrote this for Arnold, or is that just because they wanted this to be an action movie? I was reading on IMDb when they were writing this movie and developing it. They wanted it Raiders of the Lost Ark on Mars. <laughs> and so with Philip K. Dick, his work, it's so cerebral. It's who am I? You know, what makes us human? This story, it dances around those themes, but it never really gets into it. I tell you, there's my favorite scene in the entire movie is when the guy from the commercial, the doctor, comes knocking on the door. And he tells Arnold this entire thing has happened to you since the movie began, since you freaked out in the chair, is the implant. Yes, uh, I agree with you. It is It is one of the most dick-like scenes in the movie, getting into that core of really questioning the material reality of everything we're looking at. We're suddenly presented with the idea that everything that we've experienced could be totally a schizoid embolism in a poor man who's sitting in a chair about to go totally crazy unless he comes down, takes the red pill, and goes back into normality. Exactly. And so the beginning of the movie, they set that up for you. So when that scene comes in later in the movie, for a minute there, the first time you watch it especially, you're like, yeah. And it really could have done a whole bunch more of that. And I think one of the reasons it doesn't do that is the short story does not involve any of this stuff with Mars. And I don't know where they got that from. And maybe you guys know in their, in your research of where they found this whole Mars thing. But the actual short story... It pretty much is the first act of the movie. Well, Mars is a factor in it, but they never go to Mars, and we never really find out what the character was doing on Mars. That said, they do a very good job of honoring the setup, but the story ends in a very different way, and it's a very abbreviated take on it, being only 20 pages. Obviously, they're not going to take in all of this conspiracy work, but I feel like it honors the questioning of what's going on with this guy's mind and who he really is in a very Dickian way. And they right. have good script writers here. I, I want to say they got Dan O'Bannon and, and Ronald Shusett were two of the writers for Alien. And they brought these guys in here. I, I, Alien's a big one for me. I know we're going to do that podcast series at some point. I'm a big fan of Alien. And they do a good job, I think, of really extrapolating from the idea where this story could go. It logically makes sense that you would bring everything to Mars, even though the original story doesn't go there. But the original story has nothing to do with revolutionaries. It has nothing to do with people being affected by bad domes and bad air and becoming mutant-type creatures. Nothing of like that is in the story. From what I remember, I read the story uh, recently. But I do like that they explore these themes of the book, themes of the story, in this one scene in the middle of the second act. And that was awesome for me because I could really use a little bit more of that. And, and it was really kind of fun because such a high concept for a movie and you get so into it in the beginning of this movie to bring it back in the middle was so welcome, although I was still having lots of fun with all the chases and all the science stuff and all the special effects. I think it comes in in two other ways. There's two other moments that strike me as pure Philip K. Dick, and that is in the scenes where he's watching videotape 
of his former self, Hauser, his original identity, giving him instruction. When he's literally hearing what he's supposed to do, early on in the scene, he's on the run. He doesn't know where he's going. And he opens up a suitcase, and there's a video message from himself saying, you are me. And so he he's given tools to pull out the bug in his brain. And, and all of that feels like a very Dickian moment. The, and then, of course, the big reveal in the third part of the story is that Hauser again tells him that not only are you or me, but I'm the bad guy. And you have been unwittingly duped to help us quash the rebels on Mars. Very, very cool stuff. Very dick. Very honoring. A very short story that had none of those elements in it. No scenes don't occur in the short story, but they honor what that short story was doing. That scene in the in the abandoned factory where he is pulling the stuff out of his nose and the chocolate with the thing. That is just so much fun to watch. That scene was really, really well done, especially the part when you said before he brought some comedy into it, when they were shooting after the mice, when they, when they were duped about the tracer being played with by the mice. There's definitely some standout scenes in this that I, even though this is only the second time I've seen it, I've always remembered that, you know, pulling the tracer out, you know, through the nose, just a classic scene. I'm sure we'll talk about the x-ray scene. I mean, there, there, you know, the scene where Arnold's in drag. I mean, this movie's got some classic scenes in it that have always stuck with me. Yeah, the, him in the fat suit as the woman is the one takeaway that I always remembered. Even when, when you say Total Recall, I think of the bit where there's this fat woman in the airport grabbing at her ha- mouth and going, two weeks, and then the face <laughs> splits apart. It's just a brilliant effect. The face splits apart, kind of like folds out like a Rubik's Cube or something. It's hard to describe, but it, he removes the helmet that was his face and we see Arnold underneath, and it's just such a great sight gag. Even though I don't think a lot of these movies' special effects hold up, that's always a, a high point in the movie when I watch that effect. Did you notice the eyes on the side of the – when it opened up, the eyes were still moving on either side of the head? I noticed that this mm-hmm. time, and it was really well done. I still don't know exactly how they did that, and I don't care. It's still one of my favorite effects in the movie. It completely works. This movie, I believe, won a special effects Oscar – back in 1990. Yes, it did. For its groundbreaking special effects at the time, I remember on the Oscar show, they showed the nails changing color when she touched them, and they showed Mm -hmm. the skeletons to the x-ray machine, and it always cracked me up when I watched this movie that at the same time they had these groundbreaking, fantastic special effects, they also had models, and they had matte paintings, and they had makeup effects, and they had the Land of Confusion puppets, And they had all these things that were old school combined with the new stuff. And now, yeah, we can see the lines. We can see what is what effect. And sometimes to its detriment, especially with, with the, with the masks, the special effects here, when they're good, they're still good. And it's really amazing that 20 years later, even though you know it's an effect, you still go along with it because it's fun in the movie sense. It doesn't really take me out completely, but I do notice it's an effect. Do you know what I mean? Uh, oh, yeah. I, you, you mentioned earlier that this was a B movie and some of those effects totally that, that gave me that impression that by today's standard, this is totally a B movie. You know, back, back in 1990, this was, you know, state of the art, but not everything is quite held up here. But like you said, it, it's still a lot of fun. They still do some great stuff with the, what they were able to do at uh, at the time. I want to give a specific shout out to the makeup effects artist, Rick Botton. I think he is a great 
great makeup artist. He did two of my my favorite makeup jobs ever. If you've ever seen John Carpenter's The Thing, or if you've ever seen Legend and Tim Curry in the whole red devil horn outfit, that's all his work. He's so good at what he does. I think the problem I have with this movie is I think the special effects team did do a great job. I think the cinematographer did a lousy job. Oh, yeah. I think this movie is lit in a way in which the effects are rendered to look like very cheap effects. And that's too bad because I think that if you had had a a better visual style to this movie, we wouldn't, it wouldn't be so apparent that that that's latex on that child's face or that that's clearly a puppet coming out of that man's chest. I mean, I think a lot of this can be blamed on overlit lighting and just a not very appealing cinematography palette. Not only that, but the sets look like sets. I can't tell oh, you the last... I can name two other movies that I can blatantly point out that's a set. Now, obviously, most movies are shot on sets, but as you said, the cinematographer, the lighting, they have all these great things that you don't always notice. But Yeah, Blade Runner, case in point, exactly. just by contrast, Blade Runner was shot on a studio lot, but you would never know that. You would think that that was a living, breathing city because of the way it was shot. And this movie is not shot with the same love. Yeah, what bugged me, some of the interiors, not the caves, but some of the like the bedrooms, the offices, I put this in my notes. It totally reminded me of like a, a porno, mm-hmm. which might which might have been intentional, seeing that Borhoven was doing this movie, but it just looked like here's a plastic tree that will sit in the corner, and here's like a single chair we'll put over here, so it looks like someone lives in here. It, it was sparse. All the money for this movie went to the special effects. I guess they didn't have anything left for these sets. The cars, it's like let's put up over some cheap like plywood casings to try to make these cars look a little <laughs> bit more futuristic. It was just bad. And they wobbled on the wheels. Yes, it was, yeah. it was just awful. <laughs> yeah, it's it, there's no doubt about it. Certainly coming off Blade Runner, which had been made, you know, what, eight years prior and, and had a fraction of the budget, this movie, there's no excuse for why some of it looks so shoddy. And, and again, I, I don't necessarily blame the technicians so much as the cinematographers, the gaffers, the lighters. I just feel like they just use this garish red light over everything. It's like Mars. It's a red planet. We'll put red light over everything. You're right. It looks porno. It's like red light, empty room, <laughs> cheap set. I'm like, where's the pizza boy? It's It's terrible. <laughs> Did you did you notice a difference between when they were on Earth and when they were on Mars, or was it just on Mars? I noticed it mostly when they were on Mars that it looked really cheesy. I, well, I noticed it the whole time. Yeah, I mean the the Earth that we see is a very sterile, lots of concrete. It reminds me. I used to work on a college campus, and all the buildings built in the seventies were riot proof, so they're all these strange <laughs> concrete buildings. Like I just felt like I was walking around a college university, or like it, it just it did not feel like a functioning city. It felt like, and, and yet, Stuart, that concrete that that was that was real. That that's all down in Mexico City at their train stations. <laughs> so that, that, that stuff was actually real, but I, I totally agree with you. It came off as really just weird and fake to me. But that apparently that's how they do it down in Mexico City. Ooh, well, you know, I'm taking that off my vacation list. (laughs) Speaking just a little bit more to how Blade Runner and Total Recall approach, you know, they both kind of have a future in which, you know, we talked about how the only the elite drive cars and most of the people here in Total Recall are on commuter trains or they're in taxi cabs that are driven by robots that only the powerful really drive their own cars. The cars do not look as cool as they do in Blade Runner. One thing I did notice about this futuristic Earth, though, and futuristic Mars, I guess, is how many things they actually got right. 
For example, GPS. Very quaint in its form here, but GPS is actually here today, as we all know. And they also have TVs in public transportation. That's also around today. Big panel TVs. That's around today. Yeah, and you know, the airports are switching to full body scans because of the whole terrorist scare yeah. in the air. So it's not hard to imagine eventually when you ride the subway, they're going to be seeing you right down to the bone. And and there's uh, like this police state mentality that like everywhere you go, there's scanners and there's people with machine guns. And I, I don't know. The, the difference for me is Blade Runner has a classic, beautiful look to it. Even though it's very 80s in style, there's something classic and beautiful about the way it looks. And this one, it's too much spandex. It's too much aerobicized 80s. <laughs> it's too much teased hair. I just, too many bright lights. I just, all the concrete, the spandex, the bright lights, it actually kind of looked like Arnold's uh, Running Man movie. I don't know if you guys ever saw that. Yeah. But it was a, it was a real cheapie that he did in the mid 80s. And, my God, I mean, it does not look appreciably better here for all of the money that they allegedly put into this. Right. Well, also, you said it, you said it great before, and I, it bears repeating that Scott had a vision, right? And the mm. vision of his future is c- clear, and he spent a lot of time and pan shots and just the whole thing. It really gave you a sense of the vision he had. When you had pan shots of Mars, here, it wasn't the same thing. It, it didn't give you the same wow, with a wow factor. When you see that first scene of you know Los Angeles with the flames and all of that, you go, whoa. When you see Mars, you're like, oh, shit, this looks like a underfunded Star Trek Next Generation episode. I mean, it's, it's just poor. And the elements were there. Like when they first got to Mars and they had the gunfight at the airport and the dome was cracked and people got sucked out, all that kind of stuff. The script is very good about explaining the situation going on, but yet we still don't get that sense of real danger. When those people are about to suffocate, that's a real thing, but yet the movie doesn't really make me feel all that scared for these people. And it's a shame. It just seemed like when you did get involved with the characters, like I mentioned before about is this whole thing a dream or is this... Is this actually the recall or is it actually happening? That kind of stuff was the most intriguing. But everything else, you didn't really get the same connection to anything. In addition to placing some of the blame on the, the lighting guy and the cinematographer, I have to place some of the, the – the blame has to firmly go on the director there for also not making me really care about everybody else in this movie. And, and you know what confuses me is that Vorhoven, before this, he did Robocop, which is probably my – favorite movie ever i mean it's a great piece of satire social commentary but there's some great emotion in there you know the the whole thing is about peter weller trying to come back to his humanity after it's stripped from him again a a very dickian type of theme there but i mean Mm -hmm. even with lewis you you get these characters that you get wrapped in you you care about the the chief of police and he's trying to you know save the city and not get all the cops to strike i get in that emotionally this film uh, it's for and it's got like some of his key elements it's got the TNA. It's got the excessive violence. I mean, this was originally, same with Robocop, they were both originally X-rated and they had to cut out because of violence. They had to cut out some of the violence. I mean, this movie is way over the top with violence. I got to say, it was shocking to me to return to this movie. I didn't remember it to be as violent as it is, but the collateral damage in this, I'm not talking about Arnold picking up a machine gun and blowing away a squadron of bad guys. I'm talking about commuters, day to day people, me, you know, riding an escalator and Arnold using me as a shield and like blood spurting. I mean, uh, I was like, whoa. That scene where they, yeah, where he just uses him as a shield and every bullet's going into this guy. I mean, I expected 
expected it from Vorhoven, but yeah, I mean, that's that's how he made his name. Was like, yeah. we're no one's safe. See, I, I think a lot of people see Vorhoven as as a Michael Bay, but if you read Vorhoven, if you if you listen to his commentary, the guy thinks about it. And he yeah. does things intentionally. He knows what he's doing. He wants to force this sickening violence right in your face and make you question, should I be cheering this on? I mean, he thinks about that. And, and you get that scene on the escalator where this guy gets shot like a million times as Arnold uses on his shield. And you're like, I, I'm, I'm kind of uncomfortable now. Well, not only that, that scene has haunted me for 20 years. The first time I saw that movie, I remember that's the first time I ever saw a human shield ever. And I'm like. I feel so bad for that guy. And even this time, I've seen this movie, I don't know, 10, 12 times. I always feel bad for that guy. Always. That poor stuntman got shot the crap. I think that kind of violence there is really uncomfortable. But in this movie, it's, it's really weird. That really uncomfortable death, you quickly move on from it and you go along for the ride and have some more fun. Whereas in other movies, if that happened, that would have stuck with you for the rest of the movie and really kind of put a taint over the rest of the movie. But here, did you think about it much after you saw it? No. Here's the out that this movie has, the conceit that it has, that it allows it to do whatever it wants. No matter how over the top they go and no how crazy they go, you can always write that off as, well, this is a man's paranoid delusions. And none of this is really happening. It's it, You do form a strange relationship with the characters. You're right. You don't necessarily care about the people on Mars. You don't necessarily care about this supposed love interest, uh, Melina. All that you really care about is trying to figure out where this guy Quaid falls and who he really is. Arnold is on an ego trip, literally and figuratively, in this movie, and it is all about him, which is why the casting of him is so central and why it would be an entirely different movie if it weren't Arnold. Uh, Jacob, what else is a Verhoeven element here that we've been talked about besides the violence? It, it's got to come up eventually, the triple tip. I mean, <laughs> this guy, I mean, this is the guy that did Showgirls. Uh, he, yeah. He's known for adding the boobs in there. And again, usually... In Starship Troopers, and again in RoboCop, he uses sexualization to show how in the future gender differences have kind of evaporated. So you have men and women showering together, and they're not getting erect, and they're not getting turned on from it. Here, I, I think it was a bit more gratuitous where you have this mutant hooker, you know, open her shirt up, and she's got the three boobies hanging out. I, that, I think it's, you know, more of a, a 12-year-old trying to get his giggles. I, I don't think there's as much social commentary going on there. Or maybe there was that, hey... We don't care what this girl looks like. If she's going to show us her goods, we're into her. Yeah, Vorhoven, I agree with you. He has a snarkiness. I appreciate the, the early films. I did like Robocop a lot. I do appreciate his sense of humor and that he's a provocateur. And that, and you're right. That does distinguish him from the people that might think they're emulating him, like my, Michael Bay, who isn't really trying to push any envelope. He's just being who he is but uh, Vorhoven you're right there this there is a social commentary here there is sort of a snarkiness about fascism and and how it's being perceived and how you can flip who the good guy and the bad guy is very cleverly and very quickly here I do think that he is the right match for Arnold he makes this script work I don't think that you could have paired some of these other directors with Arnold and had it worked out case in point it was going to be made by the guy that directed Driving Miss Daisy with Patrick Swayze. Oh my. You wouldn't want the guy that directed Jessica Tandy in a limo going 20 miles an hour to direct an Arnold Schwarzenegger action movie. You, would just, you wouldn't have wanted that. Well, it'd be kind of funny. They had Originally, Johnny Cab was going to be Morgan Freeman if that was the director who was going to be there. <laughs> 
Oh God, Johnny Cab. You know, and that's a big. That, you look at something like Johnny Cab, and that to me is the biggest distinguishment between this and Blade Runner is that cheekiness, that sense of humor, that sort of goofiness. At no point is the robotic technology in Blade Runner really meant to be cute, with maybe the exception of some of the androids in the little uh, JF Sebastian's. Uh, room, but right. even there, they're not really that funny. But here, this lets it winks at you a lot. There's a lot of winking at this. Yeah, another thing I found really fun about this movie are the one-liners. Besides the "give these people air" and uh, all that, one of my some of my favorite lines was "consider a divorce." Love that one. And do you think this is the real Quaid? It is. Love that. It's so stupid. I love you it. You know what though? When when he rips off Richter's arm. Oh yeah. He doesn't have a pun. He doesn't say, give the man a round of applause, give the man a heart or something. It's such a lost. There's no way you would get an Arnold movie these days where he rips a guy's arms off and he doesn't have some pun. He gave me an opportunity for Hoban. I I believe they were set up to go to a party after he had his mind altered and he said, see you at the party, Richter. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's what he said. All right. Not not particularly. Not up to his standard. Not up to his third grade. It was not Mr. Freeze, Batman (laughs) and Robin standards here. I loved I loved when Sharon Stone was doing all the karate that you could almost see her counting the steps in her head. Loved that. I loved how she had a fetish for hitting people in the balls. All she did was hit people in the balls. Left and right four or five times. Boom, boom, boom. There are these cheesy things in this movie that are so much fun that accentuate the fun. These one-liners, these nonsensical things. Well, you know, I, I'm hoarding Monopoly games because when <laughs> Mars gets a economy, apparently they use red Monopoly money. So I, I'm, I'm going to get in early on this. Can you explain to me why Johnny Cab blows up when Arnold does not pay the fare? I can. I had the same note, too. I'm like, why the hell does this thing blow up for no reason? Because that's Isn't the- it an electrical car? It doesn't even seem like it's gas powered. <laughs> it goes like 10 miles an hour. It's like a golf cart, for God's sake. It's because they need Michael Ironside and the other guy to find him it's the only reason like it's the makers of johnny cab like and if somebody tries to bail out on the fair we try to run them over and blow up so that they can't get away from well their- arnold did use the f word on him and, and that's when he turned red and got mad so oh. they just don't like profanity you could chip <laughs> them on, on their pay just don't swear at them. i love how there was a joystick to drive the car yet johnny cab had no arms yeah he pulls the head off and there's a joystick sitting there why not <laughs> arnold he, he's going through the security system and, and you know again this awesome visual where you see their skeleton and they have weapons on him you get these big red alarms and dots on the screen awesome visual freaking awesome yeah so you have this great action scene in the subway Arnold gets through with a weapon, and there's, like, no lockdown in this subway system. It's like, well, someone got got through our security system. He may as well get on the, the subway and let him go. Again, this is an action movie to me. This isn't a thinking movie. I understand. That scene was great. He, he runs there through, and they establish it, what, 10 minutes earlier when he goes through the first time. And they have all the skeletons with the red things, and he jumps through. I remember the first time you saw him jumping through the glass because he's trapped on either side. I thought that was cool then. I thought it was really plays well now. It just really cracked me up that the delay these people had with the alarm. <laughs> it's really poorly edited. They have like about three seconds or four seconds of the guy staring at the computer screen after the alarm goes off and they look up. 
But, you know, they all, speaking about porn actors, everyone had a porn stash in that scene, too. But that's neither <laughs> here or there. It, that scene still plays well, and it's still so much fun to watch. If you thought the security was bad on Earth, what about Mars? Like, one bullet from a gun could blow the whole dome and suck everyone out to their death. I'm like, And, and here's know. the thing. It's not an automatic where the, <laughs> the shield comes down. Someone has to manually push a button to get the, the cracked glass to get sealed <laughs> off yeah. after everyone's been sucked out. It makes We've no got sense. bulletproof glass in 1990 they can't have that in mars 100 years later like i don't get that i mean particularly when the whole the matter of life and death like if you get sucked out they they show you in close-up your eyes bug out your tongue like grows and like expands and becomes this whole thing it's crazy what happens when you breathe mars air it's it's hilarious let's get to mars because i gotta say when your ass gets to Mars, there's just a drop in all quality. We can agree on this, yes? Well, the first yeah. half of the movie is a lot more fun than when they start explaining things. And that pivotal moment you talked about where the recall man tries to rein Arnold back and he rejects it because he thinks the guy is a phony because he's sweating. The guy tells him he can't be hurt, but yet he's sweating. So that must mean that he's there to dupe Arnold and take him away. Once that movie launches into that, it totally becomes a fever dream, a paranoid, you know, schizoid embolism, and it's way over the top. And there's so much about the story, about the conspiracy that I feel like I still am fuzzy on. I'm not going to say they don't explain it. I'm saying the explanation is really hazy. Why is Hauser coming back in this way? Can we walk through this plot? Yes, he. This is this is the simple part. Yeah, How, Hauser's can't. coming back in this way. Now you have these mutants on Mars. They were the, from the early settlers. Did they were the early laborers and their children? And Cohagen built these crappy domes. Uh, it, they had bad air, bad rain yeah. got through it. Made them mutants, which makes them psychic. So Cohagen to find out who the leader was to get someone underground, it had to be someone that really thought that they were helping the rebellion. Because the mutants, because they're psychic, would be able to figure out if they okay. were just so I'm, I'm not. I got that. So let's stop you right there. Hauser has already been undercover without the memory cap on, right? He's already been there trying to – he's met Milena, fallen for her, convinced her that he is one of them. They knew he was with Cohagen, right. but he had okay. a change of heart while on Mars, and, and I guess – I don't – no, they thought I, he might have been a double agent, or okay, it's yeah. it's a little sticky. Like I said, because I now can't... now they know he's got his memory wipe, and they know Cohagen's turned against him because they're shooting at him. So I guess they trust him. Wait, wait, but, I, wait, wait. There's one thing I don't get at all, though. If you thought all that's true, why stick him on Earth? Because he had a natch. He had to naturally come to this decision. Six weeks later. Why? Why on Earth? Well, they didn't. They didn't activate him. See, that's the part they were going to activate him at some point, and I don't know right. when the right time is right. to set off your sleeper spy. But it wasn't at that point. It was, but it was the fact that the memory cap wasn't holding, and he was still fantasizing about being on Mars with Milena. So they go to recall, and that's what supposedly popped his cap. And they had to wait till it fermented properly before they can put him back on Mars. I'm not sure. Uh, they. That's where I wanted to know more. Like I said, it's not like there's not an explanation. It's just not a very clear explanation. And I got to say, Cohagen, uh, that he would allow his this right hand, Michael Ironsign, his right hand man, Richter, to put his best friend, his his sleeper cell agent in harm's way so often. I don't know why he didn't just arrest the guy or I don't know why they had to keep the ruse up so 
dramatic. Well, I, I don't know why they had to use uh, Michael Ironside's uh, Richter's wife. Correct. To correct. To be, yeah, uh, Sharon Stone uh, is. Why they not... could just find some hooker on Earth to pretend to be his wife? Give her an implant too. Yeah. yeah. How do you expect Richter to to behave rationally when Arnold Schwarzenegger is banging his wife and she has to do it for a job? I mean, of course he's going to want to kill the guy prematurely. And and I don't, you know, that's where some of these twists don't. They're fuzzy. Uh, the other thing that I really would want to know about, <laughs> the thing that we know almost nothing about, like I can accept the fact that there's the rebel mutants that are tired of paying for their air and being mistreated and getting radiation poisoning, and that there's this quado guy that pops out <laughs> of his brother's stomach and dispenses Yoda-like advice. I'm not entirely sure what he does other than that, but <laughs> – it's all building up to the idea that there's this alien race, right? Alien race, non-humanoid race that in the pyramids, in the mines of Mars, has a device that will make Mars a breathable, inhabitable atmosphere for who? For people? For them? For for what? What? It, it, why? And they keep it fuzzy because it, <laughs> that's part of the reason Cohagen says, "Oh, they knew it would destroy the planet. That's why they never activated it." And, <laughs> but it's been sitting around for like five hundred million years. Right. right. Apparently, what happened to these aliens? Did they die off? Did they leave? I mean, yeah, it, it hints at a lot of, at a lot of cool things, but it never picks any of them up. Why on earth did they build this in the first place? Did they need an atmosphere? Right. Because they were living exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If they could breathe, they wouldn't need to build it. And if they built it, why didn't they use it instantly? Right. And if Cohagen found it and found out what he did and said, "Hey, I make my money." from mining and from selling air and this thing is going to turn the mine rocks unusable and make everyone able to breathe why wouldn't he blow it up on the spot rather than sending his friend in deep cover and trying to squash quado and the the mercenaries why not just blow up this found alien relic all of this is pushing credibility but that's okay because if you don't believe the story you can always say this is Quaid's crazy fantasy gone awry. His spy vacation turned poisoned and insane. I don't get that from this movie. I think the plot is as is. I think Quaid is not dreaming. I think this actually is happening. Oh, really? See, I would. Di- really? I totally disagree with you. I actually think the movie plays much better if you accept the downbeat proposition that Arnold is crazy and in the chair. Then why didn't they end the movie with him in the chair? They, because well, it they was don't. a huge action movie. I, right. It had to have the happy ending. They keep it ambiguous. I, uh-huh. I agree with uh, Stuart. I, I, I do think it's a dream. Really? Um, yeah. I mean, there yeah. are so many clues. I mean, even the spy adventure they're programming into him right. is called Blue Sky on Mars. Yep. I mean, everything that happens to him is telegraphed before it happens by various players who say this is what should happen. The the case that it can be built on the fact that this is all a paranoid fantasy is pretty high. And the case that it isn't, the only thing that I can think of is that there is a line of dialogue after they originally inject Arnold with the fantasy and he's flipping out in the chair and they bring in the big guy and say, what do we do? What do we do? We haven't even installed the the program yet and that's the only indication we have that this could be real because otherwise if they had done that i would say case closed and that's my proof on why i think it is the real thing also the ending of the original short story is 
similar in that they decide that, yes, we're going to have to return you to something else and we're going to give you a different implant now and go so fantastical with it that it can't possibly be true. And then he had the same problem happen to him again, i.e., that fantastical thing actually happened. That's what they were implying. That it seems closer to what's going on here. So if it's based on that story, yada, yada, yada. So for me, I understand both what you're saying and you're, you have a fantastic argument for it, but because they didn't put the thing in his head yet, because they were trying to do whatever they're doing, dislodged the other one. And then they covered up what they did with the best they could with the Quaid stuff that they removed, right? They, they but that could have all been part of the dream. I understand. Yeah. I, I, I understand that. Been part of the dream. I understand. I understand that completely. And, and so it's ambiguous, but that's part of the fun. Are you guys saying you're going with the dream angle? I'm going to go with the other angle just because that's where that's how I see the movie. He dreams about Molina, who looks exactly like the Molina on Mars. He, when they show, hey, you want the sleazy brunette? It's her. Right. I, I wish they would have taken that scene out. But, you know, originally when they're saying, hey, pick a love interest, they have these really vague mannequins. I wish they would have never showed the face because I, I think it would give more ambiguity here. But the fact that they all matched up, for me, that kind of ruins it. I, I didn't catch that when I was 14 and saw this. Now watching that, that was the big giveaway for me. Right. But of course, to count from Brock's point of view, he could have fed them all the details that would have created the woman that he already knew that was in his mind. So if there had been more questioning, the problem is the scene's really short. She like pops him with a, with a drug and he's about to pass out and she asks him a couple questions and that's it. I do think it's really funny that she waits until he's in a uh, drug state to ask his sexual orientation and what he really wants. I think that's really a funny policy for people that are selling um, secret fantasies to people. They they ask you a whole bunch of questions up front and you sign all the paperwork. And then they're like, yeah, what are you really into? What kind of kinky stuff are you really into? After you're about to pass out and fall asleep. Yeah. I'm like, that's that's a pretty funny, that's a Vorhoven touch. That's the kind of savvy, snarky, sleazy kind of stuff that he, you know, all of his science fiction movies, Starship Troopers and Robocop, I associate with those having having those details. There's a, We talked about the violence, talked about a little bit about TNA. We talked about the mind trip of this whole thing and how you can watch the movie here and there. One thing we should probably bring up before we finish up is that this has been talked about for a long time about having a sequel. And yes. where do you think the sequel would even go? I happen to know this. You know, obviously, anytime a movie is a big hit, whether it makes sense that there's more story to tell or not, they're ready to do it. I certainly love the fact that there is no sequel to this movie because of the fact that he's either, you know, it, it leaves it open that he could be lobotomized in a chair or that he really is in the fantasy and, and it cuts off right at the exact moment. Well, what they were going to do was an adapt an entirely different Philip K. Dick story to make the sequel. The idea would be that Quaid would now be a law enforcement officer on Mars. And let's see if you catch this, guys. There was going to be uh, Martian psychics used to uh, figure out crimes before they happened mm. and using their precog abilities to prevent them and arresting people for thought crime. And that plot did not come up, uh, to being. It was eventually made into another movie that is going to be a part of the series. So originally, they were going to go with a different Philip K. Dick storyline and integrate it on Mars. And I think basically what happened is Arnold got tied up with other projects and then became governor. And now they're going to reboot this movie. From what I understand, they're going to 
start over again. They've hired a, a screenwriter he's, who wrote Salt, the Angelina Jolie, Is She a Spy or Double Agent movie that's out right now. They're giving him the chore of trying to, to contemporize this and give us a new Total Recall. Interesting. Interesting. But... Are they really doing that, Stuart, or is it just a dream? I kind of hope that they do, because I think it would be nice to contrast the over-the-top 80s. Even though this movie came out in 1990, I think of this as a total 80s movie. Totally the, 80s movie. The hair, yes. the fashion, everything, the mindset, everything. Yes, everything. It's, it's a big 80s movie. I think it would be really interesting to contrast that with a more sophisticated. I think Philip K. Dick is a very sophisticated writer. I'd like to see them to pursue the, the sophisticated angle. And if they could do that, I think it's worth rebooting. I, I'm also going to just mention, just because we're, we're talking about continuations, did you guys know there was a TV series uh, as well, Total Recall? No. And wasn't it based on Blade Runner, though, or a continuation <laughs> of Blade Runner? Uh, you can, I, I'm not even going to really talk about this. You can make up your own mind. If you're curious, it's all on Hulu. They only made a season of it. And I did watch the, the first episode, and it's a buddy cop show with one's an android <laughs> and one's a human. And there's a lot of blade. Is yeah, it a Johnny a... Cab and a human? <laughs> <laughs> can I drive? No, you can't drive. I'm a Johnny Cab. It's like Knight Rider on crack if they did that. That'd yeah. be awesome. That's funny. Uh, it was uh, the guys have no presence. That was the thing that was really annoying. It's like it's like somebody's nephew got the job in these parts, and and they're not stars. And it's it's it doesn't production values are surprisingly not bad. It is a very Ridley Scott Blade Runner looking world. There's a lot of people with neon umbrellas, and and they do end up at at recall. The crime they're investigating is surrounding the uh, a memory implant couple that's assassinated and all of that it sounds like they were going to build something out of that like an x-files kind of show but it was it was all sorts of things at once it was one of those i felt like in the 90s like every b movie from the 80s was was being reborn as a tv series like the crow highlander poltergeist even more you know there was so much of that and this was just sort of another junk tv show that no one remembers and it's out there so you know if you wanted to see Allegedly, it's a prequel. It takes place four years before uh, the events in this movie. If you have any curiosity after Total Recall, after you've read the short story, you, you know, I guess you can take a look and see. It won't cost you a thing to see uh, how how it could have been a TV series. And if you don't like it, have your mind wiped. Okay, yeah, I, so, <laughs> so Stuart, Jacob, do you recommend Total Recall? Stuart. I do. I think it's a fun movie. I think that even though my personal preference is for more of the brooding, sophisticated, Blade Runner style science fiction. And I do think Philip K. Dick is served better by making it smarter and more sophisticated and more downbeat. They totally prove to me that you can make a dumb Arnold movie smart. And they, and they really give something where I feel like people that like crazy action movies and people that like smart sci-fi can both find something that's really uh, for them in this movie it's a good hybrid and a good time and even though not everything holds up for my teenage years about the viewing it's not a brilliant movie i definitely recommend oh jacob no, when we we're talking about blade runner we got in the discussion about art versus entertainment and we, we talked about blade runner is definitely more of an artsy film than maybe a, an action-packed entertaining film and a good movie could be both Total Recall, it's on the other end of the spectrum. It, it, <laughs> it, it's more of the action-oriented film, and it, it gets rid of a lot of the artsy elements that I, like Stuart, would have preferred uh, Like when I saw Blade Runner. That said, 
it's a fun movie. I enjoyed watching it. Did I enjoy it as much as from when I was fourteen? No. Did the special effects hold up? No. But it, it was like it was like a nice archival footage of eighties action movies. You know, it's it's like if I go back and watch the original King Kong, I'm not going to get upset about the special effects for that time. It, it, it was a great film. It great. It was ahead of its time, and I think Total Recall. It, it's a nice ending for the eighties action film. If you want to think, you could definitely get into the story and think about it a bit, have some good discussions. It is a dream. Is it not a dream? So yeah, I recommend Total Recall. And I recommend it too. I, I agree with you both. It is not as much fun as it was when I was 14 or 15 years old. It's not the puppets and the, and the Mars and their eyes bulge and all that kind of stuff looks like really bad puppets. The Quado puppet is just insane. We, I talk a lot about in other many retrospective series how special effects annoy me. But I think Jacob hit the nail on the head there. This movie has both computer generated and has classic effects. And this movie's right in the bubble before CGI took over for good. And although some practical effects are still being used today, it, they're greatly reduced. This one had more of the practical than the CGI, but the CGI really helped do some of those things that really made it different and special at the time, like the panels, the TV panels on the wall, and the window panels on the wall in that first scene. Yeah, you could see almost see the line around Arnold's head as they cut him out for the green screen behind him. But you know what? It's it's part of the fun. It's part of the kitsch. This is a very much a B-movie. But the thing is this. At the end of the day, as I always try to do with these sorts of retrospective series, did I have a good time watching it? And the answer here is, hell yeah! But at the end of the day, it is so much fun to watch this movie, and I think for many different people, for many different levels, it's just it's a good time. Enjoy this one, have a good time, and yeah, you get something extra out of it too, so you can't lose. Well, gentlemen, this won't be the last time we're visiting Total Recall. That is, if we want to do the entire Philip K. Dick retrospective next january almost a year from today there will be a shiny new total recall directed by lynn wiseman most famous for the underworld movies and that last die hard and starring colin farrell not exactly arnold yeah that's the way it's going it's being written by the man who penned salt the angelina jolie spy movie and i think they're going to get back to the philip k dick roots i think and you can listen to my you know, side podcast about what the original story was about, but he was no muscle-bound construction worker. So, And certainly Colin Farrell is, is not Arnold Schwarzenegger in, in look or deed. But he's pretty no, built, I, I, though. Yeah, but he's not Arnold built. I, I think he's someone that could carry it and not have that whole superstar, action star persona about him. Right. You know, play it more I, true to the dick role. I don't think of Colin Farrell as always being so built. Sometimes he looks like he's been on a nine-day bender. But, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> yes, he, he certainly, if the part required it, I think of him as one of those dedicated actors that will do what the part requires. I don't think that they want to do what they did in this Total Recall. I really think, why try to out Vorhoven Vorhoven? Why try to be campy and crazy? Why not take it seriously? Why not follow what the original was trying to do? Why not make it a paranoid thriller about an average Joe instead of some He-Man sex fantasia on Mars? So you're telling me we're not going to get, instead of get your ass to Mars, we're not going to get get your ass to Mars? 
I don't know that they'll even go to Mars. I mean, they didn't. <laughs> I know what you're saying. I know. They yeah. don't, I mean, it'd be kind of cool, though, to hear the accent and compare the accents. Can you, I can see the YouTube video now, you know, how the dueling accents of the two guys doing Total Recall. Well, here's the thing. I've never seen this story as needing Arnold. And for you, I hear that it totally is Arnold's movie. It isn't for me. I think this movie could have worked and maybe should have worked with a different actor. But they used the parts that they had, and it, and it turned out good. But I'm excited to see what Colin Farrell can bring. I think he's a very talented actor, and while I haven't liked most of what the movies he's been in, I've always thought he was good. And I think if you look at the way a lot of action movies are today, they're much more gritty and realistic. I think of the Bourne identity movies, the James Bond reboot. So I, I think going that direction with Total Recall, moving away from that 80s action film aesthetic, I think it's a good idea. Yeah, I mean, it could I, look I, th- like- I think this story could work both ways. Yes. Yes. I don't see why they would make it the big action blockbuster. I mean, I don't know why they would go that route. You're not going to do better than this movie going down that path. So why not take it in a new direction? If we must reboot, why not try different ingredients? Why try to get the same flavors? I understand what you're saying. All kidding aside, I do think I would be interested in seeing what he can do. And having read the original story, I think if they stick to that closer, I think we could have a very good movie on our hands. I just going to find it hard to believe the audiences are going to accept such a different kind of movie, given that they're calling it the same thing and it's the same source material. And the Schwarzenegger movie we just finished reviewing, it very much is a Schwarzenegger movie and it's very much still looked fondly upon by people who have seen it in the past. Yeah, but the the, the, the demographic shifted, though. The the demographic shifted and you got the younger audience. I was about to say, I bet you there is a movie-going audience that has never watched Arnold in any Thing. I'm willing to bet that. Okay. Why would they? The man's been, you know, ruining California for the last decade. I mean, he has not been in an interesting movie since True Lies. It has been 16 years since he has done anything on film that mattered. I understand your point. Around the world in 80 days, where he plays a transvestite. Ooh! I always was partial to End of Days, where he turned the T-1000 <laughs> into Satan. That was great. He had Satan-piercing bullets. If you want a good laugh, that one brings a smile every time. <laughs> well, Batman and Robin, of course, as well. Ooh! Where he of replaced course. the neon refrigerator. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Don't Chill be out. an ice hole! Uh, <laughs> So if you enjoy this podcast, please listen to our other podcasts in our Philip K. Dick retrospective. Also, go to nowplayingpodcast.com and download episodes in our other retrospective series. We have a Scorsese series, a Terminator series, a Star Trek series, a whole bunch of different kinds of series. You can check all of those out at nowplayingpodcast.com. Don't forget, Stuart is reviewing all of these Philip K. Dick stories that we're talking about for the series at our podcast, Books and Nachos. And you can find that at Books and Nachos, all spelled out one word, booksandnachos.com. And you can hear those there as well as other book reviews that you might find enticing. And if you enjoy hearing this discussion and want to become a part of the discussion, go to our website and find a link to our forums and you can have discussion with other listeners like yourself. Please leave a review for us on iTunes. You can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, pretty much everywhere. We're <laughs> you can't get rid of us that easily. So we will join you next time for our next retrospective episode in this Philip K. Dick retrospective. Do you want to give a little bit of a clue as to what movie is next, Stuart? Uh, you know what? I will tell you everything I know about this movie. <laughs> Good. It's called, it's called Screamers. I saw the trailer once in a movie theater. It has some kind of whining buzzsaw in a sandbox that was supposed to be in outer space. Okay. And, uh, and that's about it. It's about screaming robots in the sand. And Peter oh, I can't Weller. wait to watch this. 
I'd never seen any of that. I had no idea. You'll find out. We'll be reviewing uh, Screamers, and I'm even going to take the plunge and see Screamers 2. We'll be talking about both Screamers. It might be Stuart screaming by the end of that, but please join us, because that could be kind of fun, too. We'll look forward to that, Stuart. Until then, guys, we'll see you soon. Wait, wait, Brock. Yes. I have a memory coming back. What's that? Arnie's actually on this podcast. I am (laughs) Arnie. (laughs) Are you really, or is this all just one of those schizoid embolisms? Anyway, have a good one, folks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Philip K. Dick Retrospective Series. The best mindfuck yet. You can find the other episodes of the Philip K. Dick Retrospective Series at nowplayingpodcast.com in the archive section, as well as our reviews of other classic movie series including Predator, Terminator, Star Trek, Rambo, The Karate Kid, A Nightmare on Elm Street, and many more. No doubt the precogs have already seen this. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a positive review on iTunes. A link to our iTunes feed can be found at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. You can also support Now Playing by making a donation using the donate button at the bottom of our homepage. Your donations help keep Now Playing on the air. We hope you enjoyed the ride! (laughs) You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post movie mini-reviews, as well as announcements of new episodes. Links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Now Playing presents the Philip K. Dick Retrospective Series podcasts are edited by Jay. I've seen every possible ending here. None of them are good for you. The films discussed in this series are the intellectual property of their respective trademark holders, and no infringement is intended. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinions of Venganza Media Incorporated. The precogs are never wrong. But occasionally, they do disagree. Now playing is copyright and trademark Venganza Media Incorporated, 2011, all rights reserved. So, Dennis Quaid... Wait. No. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, yes! Our first outtake. (laughs) It was bound to happen, too. I mean, they had to know that, like, people, like, I thought Dennis Quaid. I'm like, and oddly enough, he was never mentioned for the role. I'm like, but it was named for him. It was B-movie stuff. Well, Conan O'Brien, Conan Conan (laughs) O'Brien, listen to me. There's another freaking outtake. Him and Dennis Quaid are doing a movie together. Yes. It's called uh, Total Recall the Barbarian. It's going to be fantastic. Yes. (laughs) It was just cracked me up. The the nose bug, when he pulled the nose thing, that, that red dot out of his nose. Man, oh, I man. Mean, that, is, that, that booger was like a gobstopper. Yeah. I mean, it was huge. <laughs> like, he has the most malleable skin. Not only can he pull gobstoppers out of his nostrils, but, like, he can breathe Martian air, and his tongue can shoot out of his face, and his eyes can pop out, and then, like, he breathes some oxygen, and he's like, boop, they're all back Completely back to fine. normal, but every other guy <laughs> in Mars who ever any exposure has these horrible disfigurements, but Schwarzenegger and his girl, Melina, completely are okay. They reverse the effects with the oxygen. Love that about this movie. Absolutely right. Why haven't they already figured out who he's, what he's about? Well, they knew he was with Copenhagen. Or Copenhagen. They, Copenhagen. Istanbul or Constantinople. <laughs> yeah. Where do you think the sequel would even go? I happen to know this. Well, thanks there you, to Wikipedia. Well, th- <laughs> God bless Wikipedia. Yes.